So when we founded the business, it was again like 2007 in Ohio. So nobody was getting VC checks in 2007 in Ohio to start a software as a service business. And so the only way you finance that kind of business is you put money on your credit card, especially when you're 23. <laughs> and if you're like a seasoned operator, someone might write you a check. But when you're a 23-year-old law school student, you want to start a software as a services business in Ohio in 2007, your credit card limit is your financer. And that's it. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. Absolutely delighted to be here today with Henry Shook, co-founder and CEO of Zoom Info. Henry, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So excited to have you. And as we get started, Henry, I wanted to pull together a couple threads from your background. I would love to hear and for you to share a little bit more about your story. And in particular, you were raised by a single mom. You've mentioned publicly that at various points, she was working three jobs to make ends meet. And at the same time, somehow you always knew that you were going to succeed. And you have succeeded. You've become wildly successful. Zoom Info is a multi-billion dollar business that went public within the last couple of years. And so I'd love for you to just, with that sort of context, just share a little bit about yourself, about your story. Sure. So uh, I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles. My mom raised myself and my sister. She was a nurse. She worked three jobs. She was always working. She worked the night shift often. It was like a schedule that she could get, but she would kind of come home, take us to school, go to her next job. And so I saw my mom you know, in passing moments, generally when she was like waking up or going to another job, she always kind of told us, look, I'm working this hard to make you guys successful in your generation. Make sure you go to college and you do well at school and all of that. And so work ethic was always instilled. So I knew like to do justice to how hard my mom worked, I would also sort of commit myself to working really hard. But in the fourth grade, I had a teacher in the fourth grade who basically taught me that if I don't understand something, I should just ask questions. And as long as I was asking questions and learning that I could achieve anything that I wanted in you know, the fourth grade. And what that meant in the fourth grade was the first time I started doing well in school, I got straight A's, and then I kind of got a bug. I just realized like, oh, wow, like I can be the best in my class if I work hard and I ask questions and I was competitive, I became competitive about it. And in the fourth grade, actually, from fourth grade through high school, I kind of sat next to this guy who ended up being a Yale PhD in molecular biology. But we would constantly compete with each other like, did you get straight A's? I got straight A's. Did you get straight A's? And it was just this great realization that if I worked hard, asked the right questions and committed myself to something, 
that I could be successful there. And then I think when I think back to it, I think that one of the things that was incredibly valuable in my upbringing was every time I committed myself to something and worked really hard at it, I ended up having a positive outcome on the other side. And so it created this like flywheel of, oh, turns out if you work really hard and commit yourself, the people around you probably are not working as hard as you and not committing themselves in the same way that you are. And so you can consistently outperform your peers by making that commitment and working really hard. And so every stage of you know my life, I've always had in my head, like, I will not be outworked. And so when I went, when I went to law school was, you know, this, this moment in my life where all of a sudden I graduated college. I did really well in college. I was student body president. I was like at the top of my game. And then I showed up at Ohio State and I was surrounded by all these people who went to Ivy League schools and top 30 schools. And I was like this kid from UNLV where I had success, but it didn't really matter anymore at Ohio State. And so I told myself again in that moment, like, do not be outworked. Like, you will not be outworked. And so I worked really hard. I did well in law school. And so basically that kind of circular feedback motion where I committed myself, I worked really hard, success came from that, just drove everything, all of my mental toughness, basically. So- Henry, you come from this family. Your mom has this incredible work ethic. She's working the three jobs. She instills that in you, you know, from a young age. And then you make it. You do well in college. You get into law school. Like you have the secure path, the secure professional path ahead of you. And then you make the decision to do this incredibly risky move and start a business. You know, and let's be honest, the chance of failing was like 90%. You know, if you look at like the cohort of companies that were started in the same week, 90% of them <laughs> no longer exist. Yeah. So can you talk about like that risk reward trade-off in your mind? You had worked at a similar business as part of paying your way through college. So you had some yeah some grasp of the opportunity, but it was a huge yep. risk. You could have taken the safe route. You could have become an attorney, Henry. And instead yep. you said, I'm going to start this company. What was going on there for you in terms of that risk reward trade-off? Yeah, it's interesting. First, I had a friend who worked at the similar company with me when I was in college. So we had worked at the similar company and we saw the opportunity. And he called me and said, hey, do you want to do this thing together? And my initial reaction, sometimes I share this, sometimes I don't. My initial reaction was like, no, I'm not interested. And things are going well in law school. And I'm three weeks away from ending my first year. And the first year in law school is the hardest year. I said, I'm going to finish this thing out. If you're interested, if you still want to do this thing three weeks from now, give me a call. And he called me three weeks later. I was in an internship at a law firm in Ohio. Things were going well there. My boss really liked me. I was working on interesting things. And then I said, look, sure, let's do this thing together. And the way that I thought about it was in a couple of ways. One, I knew there was an opportunity here. I didn't know how big of an opportunity. I definitely didn't know how big of an opportunity. But I also recognized that I was graduating. I was going to graduate from a top law school. I was going to finish my law school degree. And that was a pretty good you know, net. So if things went really poorly at Zoom Info, I could end up as a lawyer somewhere and I would have this 
good law degree and I'd get back into it. I'd be a little behind my peers because they were all interning at big law firms and they would start out, you know, making $150,000 a year. And I'd be like two or three years behind them. And I'd have to explain this weird thing that I did while I was in law school. And, and so I didn't view it as this major risk. It was like, Hey, I'm taking this risk in my life, but it should be fine if I decide that this or if this doesn't work. I should be able to get another job and move on. You know what I didn't appreciate at the time because starting a technology company or a software business in 2007 is very, very different than doing that in 2022. What I didn't appreciate was how much credibility you get for starting your own company, for selling a product, for dealing with HR and being the CFO and finding, you know, doing all the work that comes with starting your own business, I really undervalued for my future career. Where in reality, like if I was back in the job market, I would just spin that as this really valuable learning experience that very few people have the opportunity to do. And I was really undervaluing it. And so I think there is, for those thinking about starting a company or going off on their own, I wouldn't undervalue the experience that you get from starting your own company and how valued that will be in the marketplace. People aren't going to look at that and like the way I thought about it was people would look at that and go like, what a bonehead. I can't believe he thought that was like a real thing. Where I think today's world looks at that and goes, hey, there's someone with with courage and bravery and they were able to figure out something and learn a new experience that they knew nothing about. And I value that. I think that's much more valued today than it probably was in 2007. And that's like a great thing for anybody thinking about starting their own company. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Henry. And so we started this conversation about work ethic. You continue to have an extraordinary work ethic. I was listening to another podcast and you were talking about spending your weekends listening in on, you know, sales conversations. Yeah, exactly. And and I loved it, you know, because you're so passionate about what you all are doing and the solution that you have and how to serve your customers that you're doing it on your personal time. Nobody's telling you to do that. So it's clearly still part of your DNA. But you made this really interesting comment. You said grinding it out in in law school felt so much harder than yeah. working this hard for Zoom Info because you said my it, Zoom Info is su- such a much better alignment with my skills yeah. and my interests. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's so funny that you picked up on that, Bethany. It's like when I realized this in my own personal life, I went, oh, wow, like I could go back to all of these other places in my life where that was also true. So- I had this moment where I realized that law school was very hard for me. I did very well in law school, but it was hard and it was never fun. And I never really felt like the work that I was doing was aligned to my skill set very well because I'd be around other people who like, for example, one of my roommates was this like a great writer and he, like law school was a breeze for him. He never like seemed like he was trying very hard. And so I was working on this brief for like weeks and it was coming down to the deadline and I was like dreading writing it. And he like walked in on a Friday night, things do on like Sunday. And I said, Hey, like, how's this thing going? He's like, I haven't really started. I'm going to go do it right now. And I'm like three weeks in on the most like painful thing that I've done in law school. And he does, he goes in his room, he shuts the door three hours later, he comes out and I know he's going to do like tremendously well in the class. 
And I was just like, it didn't like bother me that much at the time. It was just like, look, your life is to work really hard and get a great outcome at the end. It's going to be easier for other people. What I realized at Zoom Info after years of being here is if I gave the same amount of effort to legal work that I gave to Zoom Info, the outcome that I got from the amount of time I put into legal work was far less than the same amount of time I put in at Zoom Info. I put that same amount of time at Zoom Info and the results were like exponential. And it never really felt like work because of that. It was like, oh, I could go listen to a couple calls on the weekends, a couple course calls on the weekend, hear what our sales teams are saying, and then I can instantly come out of that with an insight that can drive the growth of the company. And I never really felt like that in law school. It was like I worked really, really hard and I never got the outcome on the other side. And I thought about this and actually thought about it with golf. I tried to play golf because, you know, you're in business and everybody tells you like, go be a golfer. And I was terrible at golf. I worked so hard. Like I would go out, I would practice. I never really liked it. It was like exactly the equivalent of law school that I never got very much better. And everybody around me would just show up and they'd be like, yeah, hit it right down the middle. They had great games. And I was just like fighting every day to just like hit the ball straight. I ended up giving up golf because I was like, it's just not for me. It's five hours. There are lots of reasons to give up golf. But one of them was it just didn't align with my skills very well. And then there are other things like I played water polo in high school and college where I actually felt like I never actually reached my potential because every time that I put in, I could feel myself improving and getting better and better and better. And so I think you want to, in an ideal world, you want to find that job alignment or that work alignment where the effort you're putting in is commensurate or maybe actually outsized to the impact you're seeing on the other side. That's when you know like you really have a connection. You know, people say like, find the thing that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I don't think that's entirely true. Like work is work, right? Like I'm working. It still is hard. It still is like an easy second to hanging out with my family or going on vacation. But I never feel the same way I felt like in law school. I never feel like it's a grind. I never feel like, oh gosh, I got to do this thing that I'm not very good at. And I don't even know if I'll ever actually be good at it. It's more like I got to spend the time to do this thing <laughs> and that's it. And so find realizing that was, you know, tremendously impactful to me because the other thing that comes from running a business is once you're in it for a little bit and there's some success, people, unbeknownst to them, start asking you what you're going to do next. So they go like, oh, so what are you going to do next? As if like the business you started is just like a passing moment in your career. But when multiple people ask you that question, it does get inside your head and you start thinking like, well, what am I going to do next? What will be the next thing that I do? And having that realization about my impact at Zoom Info versus the effort that I was putting in made that question like really clear to me. Like, I want to do this until you drag me out of this place because I like doing it and my impact is really big and I feel connected to the business and all sorts of other reasons. But I think entrepreneurs should think really closely about when people and employees should think really closely about that question because it doesn't always have to be like, well, after three years, I'm going to go do this thing. If you're happy in the thing that you're doing, you can find ways to challenge yourself and grow in that role. 
I was very happy to put that question behind me. Henry, thank you for that. And I found myself just thinking about about you and some of your psychology that you, that you've shared in in various posts and and other podcasts. And there was something that you said that struck me. You said it's an inability to be content that makes you successful. And you sort of wove this into an experience of imposter syndrome that you had as an entrepreneur, you actually told a story that I found hilarious. Like it was fairly early in Zoom Info's life as a company. You might've been like several years in, you all had like $25 million in revenue or something. And, you know, like a 60% growth curve and you were at a conference or something and you were meeting all these CEOs and thinking like their businesses are so much better than mine. <laughs> like, how yep. do they do it? Like, how could it be so easy? And part of it was you found yourself focusing on the, everything in the company that needed work. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like that mentality, it's an inability to be content that makes you successful. Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, it has to be coupled. I said it at the end of that, the inability to be content has to be married to the ability to get the people around you to be okay with that. Because that's a tough place to be. And like all of my executives always struggle at first with that characteristic of my business personality. And so I am looking for areas in the business that are not operating as well as they should be. And when I find them, and they're not hard to find, right? You just talk to your team and usually people just tell you like this thing's broken or the numbers just paint a picture for you that say this is going in the wrong direction. And when I know that and I know that we're underperforming in that area, all I want to do is improve. I just want to make that better because I rec- there's nothing in the business that I look at today and go like that's as good as it can be. There are varying levels of needs improvement and like I'm fixating on the ones that are have the highest level of needs improvement. And then I want to make improvement because I know we are just under-delivering on our potential when we're not making those improvements in the business. And we know that we can be. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about those things in the business that are not going well. I write a memo twice a year to my executive team where I pretend like I'm a new CEO in the business and I'm 60 days into my job and I'm writing out all of the mistakes that that old Henry guy made that he should have fixed that were problems in the business that we all should have addressed together. And it it puts an eye on everybody looks at that and goes, okay, best in class looks like fixing this and fixing that and fixing this. That means that when things go really well in the business, the tenor around the business is very similar to when things go poorly in the business. Because when things are going poorly, you're focused on things that are that need improvement. And when things are going well, you're capturing something from that priority list that needs improvement and you're focusing on those things. And so the people around me can get frustrated when they deliver a great quarter And we go into a monthly operating review. And in that review, I'm going, well, that's not going in the right direction. That's not going in the right direction. Why haven't we fixed that yet? When they were like, they would appreciate just some high fives for the great quarter. And so it does take a little bit of, I don't know, indoctrination into the culture that you need where you recognize like, I believe you can do everything you're doing a little bit better than you're doing it. And that's because I believe in you. Like, it's just because I believe in you. And if you can see improvement through that lens, 
then it's way easier to work together to improve the company. You had this very cute comment at one point. You were sort of like reflecting back on the IPO with kind of, you know, this very sweet like moment of, gosh, we did that. And you said, it's amazing what a team of outstanding people who work really hard can accomplish together. You actually can change the world. It's so true. And on the night of the IPO, I felt that more overwhelmingly than I've ever felt it. Because this was a company that got started by, you know, me and my co-founder calling into companies and saying like, hi, I just wanted to make sure these 10 people still work here. Does John, does Jimmy, does Larry? And they would just, the operator would tell you like, yes, they still work there. And can you give me his direct phone number? Can you give me his direct phone number? Great. Like that's how a $20 billion market cap company got started. And it's very hard to see the potential of a company like that if you're not looking at the potential of the people at the company. And it's the potential of the people that drives, hi, can you tell me if Larry still works there, into a modern go-to-market operating system. And that's it. Like That's the only difference is people have to believe in what the future can look like. And it's kind of our job as leaders to keep giving them a view of what the future can be. Mm -hmm. Because people left to their own devices – won't push themselves to see something bigger than what's right in front of them. And so if you're able to like paint the picture for the future and keep reiterating it, and then you get people who really buy into that in moments in the business where it's hard to buy into it, you know, those are the people you have, at least I have sort of the most appreciation for. Mm-hmm. I think and about that for my investors too, actually, like our first investors, TA associates, There wasn't a lot to be excited about in the company. It was kind of like a couple iterations away from, hi, can you tell me if Larry still works there? But they saw something bigger and they believed in me and they believed in our ability to continue to iterate against that. That that is what they were investing in. Yeah. And I I wanted to get into the story because I spent 20 years in Silicon Valley and you know that the sort of dominant way to start a business in Silicon Valley is you go straight to the VCs, get them to write you a check, and then you start. You did something really different. You and your co-founder bootstrapped Zoom Info. I think for the first seven years, you put $25,000 on each of your credit cards. You know, you were maxing out all over the place to start this company on your own. Is that right? That is right. So when we founded the business, it was again like 2007 in Ohio. So nobody was getting VC checks in 2007 in Ohio to start a software as a service business. And so the only way you finance that kind of business is you put money on your credit card, especially when you're 23. (laughs) And if you're like a seasoned operator, someone might write you a check. But when you're a 23-year-old law school student, you want to start a software as a services business in Ohio in 2007, your credit card limit is your financer. And that's it. And so we bootstrapped the business. We, for the first... Four years, we made $2,000 a month, which was, you know, that was into me being a lawyer. I was making $2,000 a month, but we were building the business and we were taking all of the proceeds from the business and putting it back into marketing or sales or, you know, kind of saving it up in case we needed it if things went poorly. You know, when it's all your money in the business, you know, you treat the business a little bit differently than when you can take risks because your entire net worth isn't wrapped up in the company. 
But so yeah, we bootstrapped it till 2014. The business was about $25 million in revenue when we brought in our first outside investors. And throughout that time, you know, when you're bootstrapped, you have to do everything incredibly efficiently. And so we were really hyper-focused on how we acquired the next customer. And we had to acquire the next customer in a really efficient way because the next customer was going to pay for the next employee, was going to pay for the next month's rent, was going to pay for a development effort that we wanted. And so we got really focused on our go-to-market motion, how we attracted clients, how we used data to do that, how we used modern go-to-market techniques to attract the next customer. And then that also just sort of drove a future strategic value in the business that we didn't really appreciate. In fact, I think most of the time, we felt like how efficient the business was being run was actually antithetical to running a software company because every other software company picked up $100 million from a VC or every other fast-growing software company picked up $100 million from a VC and they were running a business that didn't care about efficiency, was just focused on customer growth. And so we were always kind of like embarrassed about that as a characteristic of our business. The efficiency with which we ran the company was embarrassing. (laughs) And what it ended up allowing us to do was acquire up a number of companies in our space because the investors got really excited about the fact that you could go find another company that did something really similar, but with full conviction that you could run it better. And so we were able to go out and do M&A because we knew we could bring this go-to-market motion and model, which was embarrassing us, could now come to bear as a strategic differentiator in our ability to do M&A. And we started really in a real way. Well, first in 2015, we bought the company that I had worked at in college. And then in 2017, we made our kind of first big acquisition of a competitor in the space named Rain King. And that acquisition went incredibly well. There was a 45-person sales team there before we showed up that got dispersed down to 15. And the 15 people outperformed the 45 just by us plugging in the go-to-market model. And so you just you understood there were all sorts of synergies to be had by layering this model in. And that wouldn't have been the case if we just took a big venture capital mm-hmm. check. We just wouldn't have been focused on efficiency in the business. Totally. And what I find so fascinating about the ranking acquisition is you actually met with them early. You all were yeah. bootstrapping. They had just taken on a ton of venture capital and they had all these things that looked fancy. Like they had a real office. They had like some (laughs) fancy executives, I think. And y'all rolled in, (laughs) you know, and I think left that introductory meeting thinking like, oh my God, they are going to blow us out of the water. But what happened was that your discipline and your focus And the fact that you had to be great business people, you didn't have the insulation around it, making it non-obvious whether you were succeeding or not. It turned out you all as the underdogs were able to outperform and then ultimately acquire them. I thought that was a fascinating full circle moment. It was an incredible full circle moment. I remember the first you did, you looked at this group of people who had just finished, just sold their other data business to a private equity firm and then left and started this new data business, bunch of funding, everybody right out of central casting, CEO, VP of sales, VP of marketing. And we were like kids 
you know, kids trying to start up a thing that we thought was a good idea. We weren't particularly deterred from that meeting. We were nervous because you kind of started this business and now realize this other company, which was more established and had all the right people, was doing the same thing as you. But we would find, a, you know, we were basically focused in, on finding a way to win despite the fact that we were overmatched. I remember one day I was in San Francisco for a wedding and I had posted on Quora about using at the time Discover Org and the VP of sales at Rain King like went after me on the Quora post. Like, you don't really understand. Like, this is not true. Like, we're way better. And I didn't really care what he said. I called my friend and said, I am under their skin. Like, I am. They're worried about us all of a sudden. Like, why am I not just like a flea that he's swatting away? He's spending his time responding and going after me on Quora. Like, we are under their skin. Like, we have something here. And it was the first time I actually realized that, like, okay, we actually can win here. Like, not just we can survive, but we can actually win in this race. And years after that, we had an opportunity to do that acquisition. And the company had changed hands and went to a private equity firm. And so, you know, when you're doing M&A, you prefer that there's a private equity firm on the other side because they're rational decision makers. Buying a competitor directly from the founder who also woke up, woke up every day hating you is a difficult scenario to navigate. Buying it from a private equity sponsor who's financially motivated and needs to get a return on their investment, that normalizes that environment. And so we had the opportunity to make that acquisition. And I still remember when we're flying to Washington, D.C. to go you know, make this acquisition and combine the companies, I remember being on the plane and joking like that we were like pretend executives still. We're like, do, 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 do. We are business people. Here we go. And we just felt like children, like, you know, doing this thing that adults were supposed to be doing, basically. And then that acquisition went so well that the financial sponsor said, well, how many more of these can we do? Mm-hmm. So... Henry, a couple years before this, right around the time that that you took that funding from TA, which enabled you to start acquiring some of these other companies, you talked with a bunch of different firms and you were just trying to figure out the landscape, see who would be a good partner. And you had a really pivotal moment of imposter syndrome that almost put yeah. you on a different path. And that was with a firm that was kind of indicating to you, hey, we're interested in investing, but we'll pull in our own CEO. And, and you kind of, in that moment, you sort of bought it like, oh yeah, like there probably is somebody better than me who Mm -hmm. can run this business that I started and built and have grown to $25 million in revenue. And when you were recounting the story, you said, gosh, I would have really missed the chance to fulfill my potential. Totally. And I'm thinking about that kid coming from UNLV, you know, and like, Showing up at Ohio and feeling like, ooh, like a small fish in a big pond, you know, and that mentality, like, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Even in this moment where it's so objectively clear that you're good enough, someone sort of taps into that imposter syndrome and and we still buy it. And then here you are, you held on to the company, you found an investor that was a much better fit. 
$20 billion market cap, Henry. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's insane. There are only a handful of people in the world who have done that. So can you talk to us a little bit about what was going on for you? And have you shed that imposter syndrome, you know, since that? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when that was happening, not only that, but I was out like with them interviewing, like who my successor was going to be. They're like taking me to dinners with the new CEO. And I didn't think much of it. Right. Like I just thought exactly that. Like, yeah, well, you know, what do I know? Like there's clearly a CEO who's done this before who can come in and do this thing and I can play some role. But exactly to your point, Bethany, I like I would have robbed me of my potential and it would have robbed me of all of these incredible experiences along the way, which is, you know, a big reason why I have so much respect for TA and the first investors in the business because they never talked about that. In fact, their perspective was, if it's not you, we're not really sure we're interested in this business. And then when they came in, they just kept backing me and backing me and backing me. And I remember we were at a 49ers game and it was like the Carlisle Group, TA, and a couple of our other investors were there. And they just started like ribbing me for having imposter syndrome. Like it was so ridiculous that I would have this imposter syndrome, like, like just laughing, like, like it was the funniest thing they had heard that Henry has imposter syndrome. He thinks he's just lucky. This guy thinks he's just lucky that that's why this has all happened. And that was probably the beginning of me shedding that, that was like, okay, they actually see a lot of entrepreneurs and CEOs and they think I'm pretty good. Now, does that actually change anything in the way that I operate or run? Did it take like a huge relief off my shoulders and allow me to come in the next day and kind of kick back? No, it just took this like useless thrash out of my mind space. So I just wasn't thinking all the time that I wasn't good enough. Instead, I was just focusing on doing my best. And like if they thought that I wasn't an imposter, then my best has to be pretty good. And so I was just going to be focused. I ju it's just a transition from questioning yourself all along to actually questioning yourself in a different way that says like, is this your best? Is this your best effort? Is this the best version of yourself that you're having show up in all of these different places? And that's very different than hopefully the stars align again so that I can have another good quarter or another good year. Or I wonder when a real person's going to show up to this dance and prove that I'm not really all that talented. So the short answer is get people around you who believe in you. And that goes a long way to getting rid of that head thrash. It's so important. Those people who hold up the mirror for you, remind you of who you are and what you're capable of. And I love that, that comment, I would have robbed me of my potential. You know, that like yeah. you had the power, you had the power either way to be the best version of yourself or to be less than who you could be. And when you, when you freed yourself from that burden of the thrash around, am I good enough? Am I really in the right spot? You know, is somebody going to find out at some point that I shouldn't yep. be here? You were able to focus on being the best version of yourself. All that energy now goes into just being your very best. Totally. And you know, Founders who don't start their business in Silicon Valley, who didn't go to Harvard or Stanford or MIT or 
wherever, it's really easy to start a business, then show up in a room with a bunch of Harvard MBAs and Stanford MBAs and go like, oh yeah, these are the people who know what they're doing. And like whatever they say is almost certainly smarter than anything that I would know. Like who am I to understand the business world? I'm like five years into this company that I started. And so it's really easy to fall into that trap when you don't know what, you know, the mystique around getting an MBA from Harvard and working for a big private equity firm or VC firm, you know, you don't really understand what the mechanics of that are. So it's easy for you to go, well, I'm much lesser. I'm lesser than that. And so what they say, I'm going to go with, but it's your business. They don't know it as well as you do. You know your business better than anybody else. Your job essentially is to get advice from them, get feedback from them, and then go iterate on your own business through that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they can't do that thing either. Like they have a different set of skills, skills that can use data and metrics and their experience to help you put guardrails around what you're building. But having some confidence in that room, even though you don't have the pedigree, takes some time to like build up for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Henry, you and I were connected through Jeff Chambers from yep. TA Associates, who's just one of my favorite people in the entire world. He's such a great guy. And I'm thinking about the difference that investors can make when they have that mentality that you don't have to have the same experience, the same background. You don't have to have walked the same path to be able to show up and do something extraordinary. But one of my mentors always says money comes with faces attached. And I just think about the difference for you in having a partner who reminded you of what you're capable of versus the one who is like, okay, next, you know, who's who's coming in. Totally. Money comes with faces attached. That is absolutely true. They tell you when you're going, by the way, Jeff Chambers is everybody's favorite person and has just a great mentor to everybody who he interacts with. When you're going through a financing, when you're doing a fundraise, people tell you like, this is like a marriage. It's a marriage. And I just like everybody said that. So it just became cliche in my mind. Like, okay, whatever. Like, yeah, it's not really a marriage. Okay. I don't know why you like finance guys think that. But I remember like my first big disagreement with my lead director at TA. And he was like, you have to be rational. And I said, no, I don't. I can just choose to not be rational about this. And he said, no, like we're in a relationship you have to be rational. Like if I get upset at my daughter's boyfriend, I can't go over there and like punch him in the face. I have to be rational about that. And we have to be rational too. And I remember in that moment thinking like, oh, he's right. Like I can't like just leave. Like no matter like how mad I am at him, I'm going to have to come back to this table and engage in a fruitful dialogue that gets us to a common place. And he's right. And in that way, it absolutely is like a marriage and that like you can have disagreements, but you're going to solve them. So you can decide how upset you want to be in the moment, but you're going to come back to the table and you're going to talk about it and you're going to be rational about it and you're going to get to a common outcome. You cannot escape them. You are mm-hmm. tied together. And so going into those conversations with that mentality, you know, makes life a lot easier. I love that. That's hilarious. I know we're coming up on time. I have one final question for you. You talked about the difference between a level one leader and a level five leader. And you said 
they can receive the same input, but you get an entirely different output <laughs> with the yep. level five leader. Will you talk to us a little bit about what you meant by that? Yeah. So I hired an executive coach after the Zoom Info acquisition. And he had me go through these, this like set of diagnostics. And one of the diagnostics just kind of tell you like, how do you respond to situations, positive and negative? And you can get an input that's negative and you could decide that the way you're going to treat that input is you're just going to be like really upset. You're going to go after the people in your business that sort of delivered a bad outcome. You're going to go at them in like a win-lose type way where there's one winner and there's one loser. Like you're the loser. It's a zero-sum game. You did a bad job. Or you can take that same input and you can go, okay, Here's an opportunity for us to learn. Why did we miss this thing? What can we do in the future to make sure that we don't miss this thing? How do we work together to make sure that we come out of this together and find an opportunity for us to learn and challenge each other and improve? And regardless of the inputs that come in, you have a way that you respond to them. And being able to understand like, look, when this comes into me, I get to pick. Like I can go and be a level one leader or I can go and be a level five leader here. I can decide. I can get emotional about this and angry about it and then think that the world is crumbling around me. Or I can look at it and say, okay, that is a bad piece of information. How am I going to respond to this so that the outcome of having this information is positive for all of us? How am I going to improve the organization and improve those people around me by having a positive reaction to this piece of information or to whatever happened kind of around you. And when you start thinking about reacting around yourself, reacting to information around you based on kind of the leader you want to have show up in the moment, you really can affect the type of person you are in your business. And I think historically a problem would come my way and then I just rush into trying to fix it. So like, hey, this person's unhappy about this. Get them on the phone right now. And like, that's not a great way to deal with things. I now take a much more measured approach and think about a lot. I think a lot about how do I articulate my position on something? Because what the actual edict is or what the thing you're asking for is or the direction you're taking your company or the decision you're making actually matters a lot less than your articulation of how you made the decision to get to that point. Because people will see the decision and they can make up the articulation for how you got to that decision. And if they want to make it up in the worst possible way and for the worst possible reasons, they can do that. But if you take time to articulate how you made the decisions, what you weighed when you made the decisions, what you didn't weigh when you made the decisions, and you're being really clear about that, the people around you, they're forced to put themselves into your own situation. They put their feet into your shoes and they go, okay, that's what Henry looked at. That's what he was considering. That's what he wasn't considering. Would I have made a different decision in the same shoes as Henry now that he's articulated how he got here? And the answer is usually one of two things. It's either, well, he didn't know this piece of information and he should have considered it. And that's totally fair, by the way. Or, yep, I see it and I probably would have made the same decision there too. So mm -hmm. articulating how you get to a result is really valuable. Okay. 
Henry, lightning round as we round out the conversation. So, you know, Breakline serves women, people of color, veterans who are interested in joining the tech sector. You and I have had uh, Breakline alums, Kendall Boras and Andrew Denome, two members of our community here listening in on this conversation. And I'm thinking about you as that kid at UNLV, you as the kid with the single mom who worked the three jobs, you know, like working your way through UNLV, doing whatever you needed to do to make ends meet. At that moment when you were 19, 20, 21, if we had gone and looked at all the kids at UNLV, would you have been the guy that somebody said, hey, he's going to be the guy to take this, build this company, take it public, be a massive success? And I bet the answer is no. Like we can't always tell, especially early on. And so for folks who know that they have the potential inside, the potential that you suspected you had, you always knew you would be successful, but there's a journey from where you are to where you want to be. And you had to dig deep to get through that journey at various points along the way. What words of of inspiration, motivation do you have, particularly for the communities that we serve, as they fight through those moments of imposter syndrome to really become the best versions of themselves? Yeah, so great question. I actually just heard Ashton Kutcher, of all people, talk about a similar topic. And he was talking about when he played Steve Jobs in the movie where Ashton Kutcher was Steve Jobs. And he said, Steve Jobs said, everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. The world was built by people that were no smarter than you and I. And you really look around, nobody smarter than you built the world. They just took a step in the direction and then took the next step and then took the next step and took the next step. And I think if you can get yourself to really believe that, that the world around you was not built by people any smarter than you, that's incredible motivation to jump in and to learn and grow and you can do anything. And at the very least, you can take the next step towards that outcome of the best version of yourself. And that, and then you take the next step after that and you take the next step after that. But knowing, you know, like Andrew and Kendall who work here, knowing or feeling that the people around you, they don't have any other special characteristics that you don't have. They just work here in some other way. And so you finding your way in and then taking the next step and really believing that you can accomplish the things that the people you look up to have accomplished, I think is the the best advice I could share. Henry Shook, co-founder and CEO of Zoom Info. Thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.